The word of God is a seamless garment, and men who deny its law deny its eschatology also, and are deprived of God's power. It is not surprising, therefore, that this is an era of impotence for the church. Greg L. Bonson, Theonomy and Christian Ethics. Welcome to the Worldview War Room. As always, I am your host, Brenton Levi, and I hope you are ready for a spicy episode. I talk with C.G. Billiot in this episode about Christian nationalism, theonomy, and postmillennialism. And these are some relatively controversial topics, especially Christian nationalism. Has been a lot of a discussion around that idea lately, and I think it really revolves around a uh, misunderstanding or a lack of consensus around what that term actually means and is referring to. I've heard it said that Christian nationalism is basically Sharia law for Christians, and I think that most people that would call themselves a Christian nationalist probably would disagree with that characterization. But again, there's no real strong consensus. There's been a couple of books, and we talk about it in the episode as well to get a little deeper into what that means and uh, how we can really frame the conversation in a way to where we're at least agreeing on the terms that are being discussed. But with that said, um, you know, we also talk about theonomy, which is just a word that means God's law. And I think that most Christians should really be able to consider themselves theonomists. Um, And I like what I've heard from Doug Wilson recently where he says that there is a difference between the separation of church and state and the separation between God and morality and state, right? We're not necessarily saying that we need a top-down imposition of Christianity on people. I mean, we, we can't force people to give their lives over to Christ, but at the same time, who does not want God and Christian morality to inform the laws of the state? Um, that's that's something that needs to be considered. And then there's also, you know, just the idea of sphere sovereignty in general, where the state has its own areas of authority, the family has its own authority, and the church has its own authority. So these are all things to consider. This is a great conversation, though, and I really am glad that these things are being discussed more, and I hope that this podcast can serve to just inform you about these topics and kind of move the conversation forward. Um, we also talk about postmillennialism, which I think ties into all of these uh, ideas, because when you have a more optimistic eschatology um, that really focuses on the, um, the reign of Christ now, and the um, advancement of the kingdom, and how every knee will bow, and you know all of the nations will be discipled. You know the Great Commission will be fulfilled. Um, I think that having that understanding really changes the way that we just live our lives as Christians. So yeah. Um, with that said, I hope you all enjoy this episode with C.G. Billiot. Wait. Uh, real quick, just pause the episode, and if you haven't already, go leave a five-star rating. Um, I don't know what it is. There's like way more people that listen to the show than have left the five stars. So if you like it, 
and you're listening to it, uh, it's it's real quick. It takes like two seconds. Go leave the five stars. Then you can come back. I don't, like, what mean? What are you ungrateful? You, you, you lazy? What are you? What are you doing? Okay. Uh, thanks. <laughs> CG Billiard, how's it going, brother? I can't complain, or at least I can't complain yet. But I'm very grateful to be here, brother. Really appreciate it. I'm excited. Yeah, me too, man. Me too. All right, so let's get started with just uh, a little bit of background about who you are, what you do, and your testimony in coming to Christ, and then we can go from there. Awesome. Well, I'll try to be as concise as possible because anyone who knows me knows that I can just ramble and ramble and ramble. So right off the bat, let's deal with the present. So presently, uh, I am a service warfare officer in the United States Navy. So right now I have to give like that generic disclaimer of whatever I say, whatever I espouse is not representative of the Navy or the DOD, whatever. All right. Now that that's out the way, uh, first and foremost, I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and subject to his rule and reign. Uh, I am a, a husband to my beautiful bride, Brooke Billiot. Um, and right now, aside from the Navy stuff, I'm pursuing eventually a post-military career in the full service and ministry of Christ. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. If you go back uh, two decades uh, or more, I, I was raised in a Christian household in the deep south of Louisiana. So kind of in the area where if you throw a rock, you'll hit somebody that's a baptized believer. Uh, very deep under the Bible belt. Uh, and that being said, I adopted a cultural Christianity that was hyper-evangelistic and yet at the same time, not true and foundational or relational uh, to our Lord. Now, granted, I've been baptized into the triune name uh, when I was eight years old, just like everyone else around where I was from. Right. Uh, but it wasn't until college after years of living a hypocritical double life where the Lord, in one sense, took me by the shoulders and was like, hey, you, no, this isn't it. This isn't living for me. And I was rebuked uh, and, and literally discipled. There was plenty of wonderful men of God who took me under their wing uh, and guided me back to the path of righteousness. And when I got there, I took a very, very deep dive into all kinds of things that I would have never imagine. So like growing up, for example, anything associated with reformed theology was like the boogeyman of my household. I was told like, hey, those crazy Calvinists, like stay 10 feet away from them. So I just, that was my only perception. But then in college, when I was wrestling with sin and what was it to possess a Christian identity, I was introduced to guys like uh, Paul Washer, John MacArthur, John Piper. Um, and I was like, man, like, why do I like these guys? Like, what do they all have in common? It turns out they're all reformed. And I was like, oh, shoot. Okay, well, now I have to wrestle with this. And wrestle I did. Um, for about a year, I was in strong denial. Of, like, I don't want to believe this. I don't want to believe this. But then looking at the text of scripture, I had to make a decision of, do I believe what this says or not? And uh, here we are. So over the course of those two years, uh, became a member of a Reformed church and was just saturated with scripture, theology, and practical application uh, from God's word. And so that's where we are. That's where we've come from. And uh, I pray that whatever it is that I do or find myself doing, uh, it would be to the glory of God tangibly, practically, and tactically in everyday life for myself, my family, and uh, Lord willing, the communities that we find ourselves in. Yeah, amen, brother. So in that process of, I guess, like learning about Reformed theology, um, do you remember like when you um, were first confronted with the idea of eschatology and how that, I guess, would impact your theology and just your faith? Yeah, absolutely. So, oh gracious. <laughs> it's actually, 
it's actually funny because eschatology was one of the backdoor ways I believe the spirit pushed me towards these convictions. Um, because for anyone who becomes reformed, it's not like they wake up one day and they're like, oh, I'm a five point Calvinist. Like actually no, like more times than not, it's a struggle because I'm a firm believer that people have a problem with reformed theology, not because of election or limited atonement. It's usually because of total depravity. It's usually they don't understand. They're unwilling to believe because they would have to admit they have contributed absolutely nothing to salvation. Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards famously said that the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that needs redemption. Um, and so once that broke through for me, um, I was one of these kind of gateway Calvinists where I was like, okay, cool. Like the, the, the doctrine of salvation I can get behind, but all these other weird things like infant baptism or post-millennialism, like not a chance. I would never believe that. Right. Um, but the more that I proceeded to reread the gospels over and over and over and over again, I came to the realization that the gospel was not when it was presented, you can go to Mark one verse 15 and following. It was not repent and believe and ask me to come into your heart. Right. It was not repent and believe and then join kind of this conglomeration of goody two shoes folk who are waiting to get to heaven. It was repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand and it was immediate and it's repeated over and over and over again. And just being a wise student of scripture, I had to ask myself, like, why is this immediacy so prevalent and prominent throughout Christ and the, and the apostles, their preaching of the gospel? And what really snapped the twig in my, my mind was realizing that the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament is not Genesis 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not anything from the Torah at all. It's actually Psalm 110.1. And Yahweh said to Adonai, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put all of thine enemies under thy feet. And for me, I was perplexed. I was like, what in the world, like, why would that be the most repeat? Like that has to mean something, right? It's not a coincidence. There's not a jot or tittle of scripture. That's an accident. Um, and it sent me just spiraling, spiraling, spiraling to understand that, no, 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 we, Christ's kingdom really was inaugurated. And actually Christians have believed this for uh, 2000 years, but it's, it's been shut out in the mainstream in the last 200 by premillennial thought. And I was one of those. I was a hyper dispensational. My grandfather was a Southern Baptist uh, minister and I inherited from him a very, very, like intense, I'm going to read the newspaper and scripture at the same time because something's going on in Israel and, and the world leaders are trying to form a one world government and all these things. And once that stronghold fell in my heart, understanding that we really are in the kingdom. Oh dude, like so many doctrines had to be reoriented because if Christ really is King right now in time and space, heaven and earth, so many of our considerations and our applications in daily life have to change because he really is reigning. Um, and so having that kingdom mindset, this gospel of the kingdom, reorienting all my thoughts, like I said, it was a domino effect for pretty much everything else in my walk with Christ. Yeah. So would you mind just for maybe our listeners that might not be as familiar, just giving like kind of a brief overview of like all mill, pre-mill and post-mill and then kind of maybe go into um wh what the shift was in your thinking when you went from like a pre-mill eschatology to a post-mill absolutely so very briefly because again this these are things that have been debated for <laughs> so long and so long and actually the exact question that you just tossed at me i tossed once at a pastor 
at a collegiate uh, ministry night and he was, he was not happy with it because he, <laughs> it's something that uh, there's been a joke that the millennium is a thousand years of peace that Christians like to fight about. Uh, and here we are in this room of, yeah, exactly. Here we are in this room of 200 college students and everyone's asking very like, you know, how do we, how do we, you know, be patient with our, with our friends or how do we share the gospel this way? And here I am as the nerd, like, Hey, can you define your eschatology and explain to everyone else the different positions? Yeah, he was not happy. So here we go. So it's unfortunate that these are the labels in which we use because they're all oriented around Revelation 20 about the millennium that is described and what do we interpret from that. Um, it's unfortunate we use that because there's so much more to each of those schools of thought that any adherent to them would tell you like there's way more going on. The premillennial, whether and there's two different kinds, there's historic or dispensational, essentially believes, regardless of those two camps, that at any moment Christ can return, but it's not until he returns that he really reigns over the earth. Basically, what they think is in the Great Commission, when Christ says, uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, that Christ was essentially given a vehicle, a car, but it's just sitting in a driveway. And he's not going to drive it again until he has to save the destroyed church after times of incredible persecution. They differ. Those two schools of thought differ about when the quote unquote rapture is going to happen. The problem is that the word rapture is never used in scripture. So that's a side conversation. But they both believe at some point the Gentile church will be raptured out and there's going to be something that happens with regard to bad things going on on the earth. And then Christ is going to reign physically on the earth for a thousand years, the third temple in Jerusalem. That is what most people have come to know in modern day America. The amillennial position said, so ah, the prefix ah or uh, a meaning no millennium is they essentially take the position that since Christ's ascension, we have been living in the kingdom, but all of its um, effects, if you will, or its stipulations onto the earth have been hyper-spiritual, that we're just kind of in this big pie-in-the-sky war of good and evil um, until he does return, and then he's going to judge the living and the dead. But like, in other words, this is all just kind of cyclical, milk toast. like oh, bad people are being bad, and Christians are trying to strive, and then, you know, we're just waiting. Uh, and then post-millennial says that uh, for the last 2,000 years, the history of the church has been that despite incredible persecution, the gospel has gone forth. And not only has it continued to save, it's continued to have a tangible effect on world civilization. That it's the Christian church which has led to innovations in science and mathematics and uh, technology and literature and art. And we've continued to see that and we will continue to see that uh, until there is a literal period of uh, Christian prosperity and peace, not necessarily the materialistic side of things, but an era which we can trust the promises of God that uh, they shall learn of war no more. Uh, and there will be Christian predominance over the earth because the gospel will have succeeded. And post-millennials agree with Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, that at that point, Christ will return, having been a good steward of what the Father gave him, to turn it back over to the Father for his glory, so that God would be all in all in all that he's done. So, uh, essentially, the millennium from the post-millennial perspective is ahead of us, but it's a far long, a far longer term view than the pre-millennial and the amillennial. The amillennial really doesn't have a view. It's the most apathetic, I'd say, uh, towards the whole eschatological processes. Uh, but the pre-millennial is, is like, we got to do things right now, very immediate, very um, narrow-minded, so to speak, whereas the post-millennial says, like, no, 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 like, God has promised to be faithful to thousand a thousand generations so we have a lot of time uh that we need to contribute to the building of his kingdom and its expansion and its flourishing 
uh, and and that's when uh, Christ will return. So again, a lot more nuances there. Uh, that was a very quick summary and a lot more going on, a lot more at stake, but hopefully that was a, a decent answer to your question. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for uh, giving us that. And for me, like part of, part of what I guess was convincing to me um, about the post-millennial position is that all of creation um, was redeemed by Christ. And it's not, you know, it's not just um, wait until heaven, which is going to be this kind of like separate place. It's like, no, it's like we're creating a new heaven and a new earth. Like God is doing it through us. Yeah. And I think that, you know, eventually it's going to be something way different than, you know, what we experience now, but we will be given new bodies, you know, yeah. and ev everything will be redeemed. And, you know, I think God is just doing that through his church and through his people until Christ's return. And I think that um, that understanding um, is just so much more optimistic. It's so much more um, just practically speaking. I mean, even if it wasn't, you know, theologically correct, which I think it probably is, um, it's still the most practically useful um, view of um, our faith. I mean, yeah. would you agree with that? Oh, yeah? without a doubt. And I, and I apologize that I necessarily answered that part of your question. But, but even if we take the most minimalist approach, right, the most pragmatic approach, we, we still end up like uh, the famous mathematician Pascal, who we might remember from trigonometry or geometry, like Pascal's triangle, right? A lot of people don't realize he was a believer, and so were many of the uh, scientific and discovery movements. Uh, but at any rate, he had essentially a, an ultimatum where he said, look, it is far more logical to be a Christian and it be wrong than to not and miss out on eternity, right? Or be punished in eternity. We can take the same pragmatic approach to our understanding of eschatology, of what makes more sense, uh, more sense as an everyday believer to believe that basically nothing that you do really means anything because it's all going to be destroyed in this tribulation or nothing you do really means anything because this is all just spiritual hocus pocus, kind of a Gnostic escapism where like it, we just need to be worried about the spiritual, none of the physical, none of the real day-to-day -day things matter. Or should we believe that, no, no, the gospel really does transform lives and not just in the spiritual, but in the physical. It changes the way that we think, the way we speak, the way that we uh, participate in community. And it has a contagious effect that reorients communities. And I'm just, again, pragmatically, I just look at history and time and time again, when believers believed that, oh, it changed, it changed the world. It, it created the, the largest innovations in uh, practically every school of thought. And we would be foolish to not consider that. Again, like you were saying pragmatically, because unfortunately when I talk to a lot of folks about these quote unquote controversial things about eschatology, uh, they are so ardent about defending their position without even considering like, hey, what is the fruit? What is the fruit of your position? I've got a good friend. Uh, he runs the Stoic Christian page on Instagram that a bunch of people follow. And that was actually this pragmatic approach is what got him into postmillennial thinking of, well, wait a minute. What's what's the fruit of thinking pre-mill or amill or post-mill? Because at the end of the day, ideas have consequences. And particularly when we study the near history of the church the last 200 years, the predominance or the, the uh, surgence, the emergence of premillennial thinking, I believe has severely distracted, uh, divided and ultimately destroyed what our Christian forefathers built for this country and Western civilization. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, Christ reigns and we like, it. it is up to us. Like, you know, God's going to use us to 
to bring his reign over every area of life. There's no reason that Christians can't be at the forefront of science, business, art, music, you know, culture in general, like economics, like everything. Like there's no reason that but we've separated out, you know, we have church, we have religion, and then we have every other area of life. And that is just not, that's not the gospel. That's not nope. the Bible. That's not, you know, how the apostles preached. That's just, it's not what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We have made a waffle uh, out of what the Lord has called a pancake. All right. Now bear, we're working with me here. All right. So the waffle <laughs> approach is exactly as you described. We have a little compartment for the church, a little compartment for the state, a little compartment for the family, a little compartment, you name it. Right. Whereas, no, 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 the particularly just read the book of Acts over and over and over again. The sermons that were given were were given in such a way to say Christ is over all, literally, not just spiritually, literally, because he didn't just spiritually come in the flesh. He literally came in the flesh. Right. He didn't just spiritually die for our sins. He literally died for our sins. And even now he in the human form sits at the right hand of God. That is so essential, because, again, like I feel like a lot of times. Folks will hear this and they'll say, okay, but I can, I can live optimistically or I can live like that regardless of my eschatological position. And I'm like, okay, but are you doing so as an undercover Christian of like, you're going into business, you're going into politics and saying, oh, but I'm a Christian, but I'm going to like keep that to myself and not let that dictate how I operate. It's like, no, 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 that's, that's antithetical to the call of the gospel. We, we are supposed to, in every realm of life, be explicitly Christian and where this is funny for Americans in particular is not only is such a call and such a conviction um, in step with scripture, it's in step with our own history. That, that's been one of the things that has been so eye-opening to me is to study the Christian heritage of America and see that, okay, not even 100 years ago, we were still enforcing blasphemy laws uh, in the civil realm to say that people were prosecuted for uh, blasphemy in the name of Christ. And that was still in line with the First Amendment. So when I saw that, I was like, okay, I really need to re relearn some history of like, how is that consistent with the First Amendment? What was the point of the First Amendment? What were the intentions of uh, the colonials that came over uh, to the new world, quote unquote, right? And it was to propagate the gospel. And this is, when you just look at the primary sources, this is indisputable. The funny thing about it is how secularists and atheists have responded. They can't deny it. They either just avoid it or minimize it to, okay, but that was their time and this is now. And unfortunately, we as evangelicals have gone along with that. Uh, and we really don't care. If, you, if any evangelical today were honest and they assess what they learned in public school, one of the things they should do is ask, what was, what was not valued in my education? More times than not, history was pushed to the curb. After middle school, you really didn't have to touch it in high school. And economics. And, and, and those things go hand in hand, because if we don't understand economics, if we don't understand our history, then the state, then society can tell you what is proper for the citizen, as opposed to the word of God and opposed to what our Christian forefathers did. Yeah. All right. So then that kind of brings us to uh, some other topics I want to talk to you about, which would be theonomy and Christian nationalism. Oh, so, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, so, which is some hot topics, um, yeah. but I think they're uh, definitely things that uh, need to be discussed. Absolutely. So I guess in your journey of like discovering Reformed theology, um, kind of, you know, having your eschatology turned on its head, when did 
you know, these uh, topics become something that you became aware of? <laughs> All right. So before I pause, if we just listen to the silence for a second, some somewhere, somehow, there's an evangelical that's quaking in their boots because we're about to talk about <laughs> actually obeying God's word. And that's terrifying. Uh, but also, if you listen carefully, I apologize in advance. I forgot to mention. In my neighborhood, I live in Florida, so this is gonna this is gonna tickle you if you think we're all rednecks because we are. Uh, there are two shooting ranges near my neighborhood, so if you hear gunshots, I promise I'm safe. In fact, I'm very very <laughs> safe. There's a clay pigeon range, there's a shooting range, so I apologize for the audience. Additionally, uh, my wife and I just got a puppy, so if you hear him whining or anything, he's just trying to hear about Christian nationalism as well. Um, <laughs> so when did I become aware? Well. One of the most helpful things, because part of what I want to do in, in this whole episode is articulate to people, look, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, a, an ordained theologian, right? I'm not uh, C.R. Wiley or Will Spencer, as I joked before the show. Uh, I'm just a regular guy, a regular lay person, um, but someone who's utterly convinced that, no, Christ really is king, and like we really should mean that. So what I want to do is point folks to the resources that changed my mind, um, and I'm going to do that at the end, but... Part I wanted to say that because it goes hand in hand with this with your question. One of the most helpful things I read was a uh, a little pamphlet uh, from Dwayne Garner. I have it somewhere right here, um, titled "The End Is Not Near." And as a dispensational, I was like, "I'm never going to read this." Whatever my my eventual pastor had given to me uh, the first time I met him, and I was like, "Not going to read that." Well, I did, and uh, it just it changed everything. So in that little pamphlet this understanding of if Christ really is king now and he really is reigning and we like even some Calvinists who are not uh, theonomists or quote unquote Christian nationalism, uh, Christian nationalists, they'll say that, but then they won't recognize that not only is Christ sovereign over the ends, he's sovereign over the means. And what are the means by which his rule is propagated? Well, if we go all the way back to Genesis, men are charged with taking dominion. Right. This is essential. And we see that reiterated in the Great Commission that we are still to go uh, and be fruitful and multiply and subdue all things. It just now has a far more spiritual component, but it doesn't minimize the original charge of taking dominion. And so if we are the means by which Christ propagates his reign and rule. It has to come from the word, no matter how, because there's plenty of debate. I'm going to talk about that in a second. There's plenty of debate about how we do that, but we can't stray from that as we have in this secular world order we now live in, where we've completely disregard the word of God and have become antinomian or anti-law with respect to scripture. So when I was exposed to these things and I was ex uh, exposed to the controversy around it, I, as a newcomer, was like, why is this controversial? Why is this? Because no matter how we try to slice it, right? No matter how, how much we try to pretend, if you are a Bible-believing, born-again, obedient Christian, congratulations, you're obeying the laws of God. Like, and so, like, no, no matter, because we say, oh, we're, we're saved by grace, not by the law. Oh, no, no I'm still saying that, too. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, right? That does not change. But with regard to our sanctification, our daily obedience, our daily killing of sin, there is no other means by which the believer and the world can experience that apart from God's law, right? Um, and, and so we deny that as evangelicals. We deny that because we've accepted the secular lie or the lie of the state. But we also haven't. So like if you what I would tell a listener right now is exactly what Dr. Gary North uh, would say, is that if you in any way, shape or form oppo oppose abortion, 
on the means on the grounds of it is antithetical to scripture congratulations you're a theonomist in some degree like you're mm-hmm. you are someone who believes in the law of god applying to all people in time and space to some degree same with gay marriage right exactly exactly that's that's the thing so before i get ahead of myself because i know i've given a quite a lengthy intro to this theonomy uh theos nomos just means god's law right and again i as a newcomer was like but yeah of course we all believe in God's law, we seek to obey God's law. Why is this controversial? So I'll pause right there as like as an intro and toss it back over to you because then I'll get into Christian nationalism, why that has been a very interesting thing to explore. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe before we go quite all the way there, how about just a little bit of what is their distinction between maybe theonomy and like theocracy and then also how do you um and this might also kind of get a little more into the idea of christian nationalism as well but is there where do we draw the line as far as like sphere sovereignty versus Mm. you know actually having yeah so yeah yeah, just uh, go with it wherever you want Ooh, ooh, all right let's you're gonna have to slow me down and make sure that i don't circle the wagon too many times all right so yeah let's this is the purpose so we've defined theonomy now let's slowly walk through the near history of the application of that term. Because again, that term in of itself shouldn't be controversial. What's controversial is the, the near-term history on it. So we go back to the 60s, 70s, 80s, and it's collapsed in the 90s. The theonomic movement was spearheaded by a number of theologians of the names like R.J. Rushdoony, Gary North, uh, and perhaps most notably, Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson really, really took the word theonomy and ran with it. Basically to say that all spheres of life, the and we're going to talk about the spheres of sovereignty here in a second, but all of life, so the church, the state, the family, everything in public orientation needs to be articulated from the law of God, from the Mosaic law. Um, and that ruffled a lot of feathers. <laughs> it really, really <laughs> did. Um, and so I'll go farther down that rabbit hole later. But where some other critics came along, notably uh, James B. Jordan, Peter Lightheart and others from those reform circles, they said, hey, 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 we have no problem orienting all of life uh, around the word of God, but we need to be careful how we do that because there's different theological intentions for the various laws of the Mosaic law, right? They describe themselves as more theocratic. Uh, Now, a lot of people have a problem with that word theocracy, right? But the problem that they don't understand is that all civilizations, all societies, all governments are theocratic in the sense that they serve a God. These were points articulated by Cornelius Van Til and Francis Schaeffer that in a system, in a society, uh, any environment in which multiple folks are living and working together, all right, there is going to be something that they are all oriented around and all worshiping, all obeying. So it's either the God of scripture or it's some other false God. There is no, there is no alternative. There is no neutrality. Uh, it's all a, it's all a myth if anyone espouses that. There is no third option. It is either Jehovah, the triune God, or it's a God of our own creation. Um, and so what these theocrats were then being more honest about was, hey, we want to apply the word of God in all of life because all does belong to Christ. But we need to be careful in how we proceed in doing that. But they, too, were striving for a Christian theocracy. So those are some of the big distinctions between the theonomy, as it's been recently known, and theocracy, as it's been recently known, reform circles. But then now, now there's a bombshell of, oh, the boogeyman Christian nationalism, right? Oh, what are we going to do? So 
I love this because what ended up happening was the evangelical community at large looked at the theocrats and the theonomists and were like, you guys are both crazy. We're going to just ignore you, not invite you to conferences, not publish your books, whatever. And in the 90s, they kind of fizzled out. However, for of God's providential purposes, now if you hop on social media on a lot of evangelical pages, you're going to run into terms like post-millennialism, Christian nationalism, theonomy. Why? Because we are seeing essentially a, re a resurgence of those ideas that were uh, that were shushed, if you will, because because the hour is nigh. Now we're looking around and we're saying, oh, these guys were right. Like there is nothing neutral in society that either honors Christ or it doesn't. Oh, ideas do have consequences. When we embrace secularism, we get drag queen story hours and all kinds of crazy stuff. We now the fruit is so apparent we can't ignore it. And so there's popularity around these terms because everyone's looking around of what do we do now? And this is where the publication of The Case for Christian Nationalism in the past year by Stephen Wolf um, and Christian Nationalism published by Andrew Torba. These two things are kind of the center of controversy and conversation because they are presenting themselves as alternatives of what does building a Christian society look like? Now, again, I'll pause right here because I want to go into further nuance about that term Christian nationalism. But these I wanted to just explain the near history of these three big terms, theonomy, theocracy, and Christian nationalism, so folks have a an understanding or a framework to operate in. Yeah, man. So I mean, there's there's so much there. So now that we have those terms kind of on the table, where do you see? Um, you're talking about the conversation, how these ideas have started to come, like have a resurgence in yeah. you know evangelical circles. Where do you see um, it heading, and do you see that it? Do you see the pushback from the big evangelical like machine? Do you see that as being something that's going to be effective and kind of like crushing the the ideas again, or do you actually see it getting some traction and um, maybe even like you know making its way into mainstream culture? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually realized I didn't answer part of your question again. I, I was telling you, you got to hold me accountable to circle the wagons because I'll get lost in the sauce. Uh, but you were talking about this. This will uh, be integrated with. Uh, the immediate response to your, your latest question. So you asked me earlier about spheres of sovereignty, and I think that this is actually what is the most um, appealing to folks right now who, again, are looking for answers, despite the controversy of the different uses of these terms and these ideas that are circulating in literature and social media. Folks are drawing to the spheres of sovereignty, whether or not they know anything about Reformed theology or those terms. So again, history of the last 200 years, if you don't know Abraham Kuyper, you are losing. So Abraham Kuyper was an absolute stud, an absolute unit uh, at the turn of the 20th century. A man who was so influential, we're talking about him right now, he's, he's having an effect on evangelicalism right now. Um, and even 20 years after his death, uh, the most evil men in the world were still terrified of him, most notably Adolf Hitler. So very quick sidebar, Abraham Kuyper was a pastor, theologian, editor, prime minister of the Netherlands, and so on and so forth and, 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 and what have you. And his theology was so instrumental in shaping the Netherlands with the spheres of sovereignty to say that the three governments in scripture that are articulated are family, church, and state. And understanding the sovereignty of those areas and their jurisdictions of 
What is the family charged with? What are their responsibilities? And where can the other two areas not steal from them? And so forth for the church and so forth for the, uh, for the state. It was so instrumental and the Netherlands became such a Christian society that again, 20 years after his death, when Hitler was trying to eat up Europe for breakfast, he knew I really got to handle these Dutch well because they, they know the word, they know how society is supposed to be ordered. I need to steal that spirit from them. Um, and so today, when people are seeing all these debates about what are we supposed to do, they're drawn to, okay, I can't do a whole lot. I'm a, I'm a little guy. I'm a little fish in a big pond in this, in this huge ocean of ideas. What can I do to act? Well, people are getting more books on how to disciple your family. What are the roles of the family? What is the family for? And then they're going, okay, but what's really the intention of the church? Because we're seeing a lot of bad things from the contemporary church today. What's the church for? What is it supposed to do? What are its rights, right? And this has all been illuminated by COVID as well as the same thing for the state. It's like, what does the state really have the right to do from scripture? What is it for? What is its role? And so it's the spheres of sovereignty that are starting to, regardless of denomination, regardless, uh, regardless of ecclesiastical tradition, folks are being drawn to uh, these things because they seem tangible, practical, and tactical. Uh, we need to act uh, our children are depending upon us. What does scripture have to say? What hath God really said, right? We're flipping it back on the serpent. Uh, and that's what's exciting because a lot of these things, like I said, I'll get to the nuance on Christian nationalism, but a lot of these things that are being debated by big Eva or the big leaders of evangelicalism, I think is cowardice. Um, I'm a Navy guy, uh, but I've worked uh, hand in hand with Marine Corps guys. And in one of their leading um publications on warfare doctrine, there's a saying from the old Chesty Puller that says this, like, I'd rather have a 70% good plan right now than a 100% great plan when it's too late. All right. So the head honchos of the church in America, so to speak, are debating about what do we do in the public sphere. Meanwhile, there are congregations that are spiritually starving. They're spiritually lost, but they want to fight back. And it's these things uh, in, with regard to postmillennialism and God's law that are bringing them into the fold and saying, hey, you guys need to figure it out because we're ready uh, and we want to move and we want to see things glorify Christ. So I think it's those things which going forward are going to be the bedrock of the church eventually coming to agreement on these things that uh, and God forcing our hand. I think a lot of the persecution and the social unrest is actually a grace and a kindness from God because there's no better time. I would argue there's, there has been no better time in the last hundred years to distinctly see what, what does the church believe? What is it supposed to believe? And what does the pagan world believe R right now? Again, the myth of neutrality or the myth of, uh, of just blending in, it, it doesn't exist. If you truly believe the words of scripture, you're going to stand out. And that's a grace towards us because it's pushing us to act uh, with a plan. And, and boy, we need to get a plan together. Yeah. Your point about Kuiper and how Hitler was actually like afraid of just that of, of that movement and that philosophy, I think it really underscores what we're dealing with, you know, in America and in the West in general is like when the current philosophy or the current theology that the church, um, you know, in general is applying is the state's not afraid of it anymore. Like the state's not afraid of the church anymore. And it's because of, it's because of this weak theology that, that we have. And I think that, you know, post-millennialism, 
you know, theonomy and Christian nationalism, like that, you see the pushback, like when the Christian nationalism term, like there was that hit piece um, that, um, uh, what was it? Uh, 60 MSNBC. Minutes, I think. Or, yeah, MSNBC yeah. did on uh, on Doug Wilson in uh, Moscow. Um, but, it, you know, it's like when, when they see that like, oh, wow, like, yeah, there actually are like political and social ramifications or ambitions that these strong, I guess, pastors are strong. Like the, the church can be strong and have these ambitions in the, the political and social cultural spheres. And I think that that really actually scares the the state and the people that, that want to um, kind of push this secular agenda because they understand that that is where the power really lies. Does that even make sense? No, it does because you know what, 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 right. what yeah. you just articulated for the audience is crucial is there is a paradox from the secular um, understanding. So what, what you started with, I don't know if you recognize this, what you started with is the state isn't afraid, but then what you ended with was, but they are. And that's precisely uh, the reality of let's, let's consider that hit piece, right? If anyone watched that hit piece, I'd recommend uh, if you haven't go, go on YouTube, look it up, MSNBC, uh, Moscow, Idaho, Christian nationalism, right? What they basically did in that was like, look at these bigot Christians. They're, they're horrible, huh? but don't worry about them. But also, but also worry about them, right? Cause we're doing the piece. If they weren't to be worried about, then why would you do a piece highlighting it? Right. And so what you've described is the state loves the little C church. They love the contemporary church. They, they even featured it on the piece, right? They got the Unitarian female pastor, right? Like capital H heretic, right? And they're like, see, this is our representation of the church. Like they agree with the state. That's the little C church. But the capital C church, Bible believing church, who says, no, that congratulations, uh, the state, Caesar. Like there are things that you cannot do. You are a minister of God as charged with Romans 13. Uh, the word diakonos is used there, a servant, a deacon of the Lord. There are things that you cannot do. Your primary role is justice. And where you step out of those bounds, right? Like we are going to hold you accountable. And congratulations, that was the whole point of the Constitution, right? The whole point of the Constitution, we forget our history, was to restrict the government, right? Congress shall make no law, dot, 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 over and over and over again, right? Um, and so you're absolutely right. Like the, the state loves the little C church that goes with the flow that says, hey, you guys do whatever you want because we're going to be raptured away. So actually, we kind of hope it gets worse because that means it's coming back. And the state just they rings their hand. They ring their hands together. And go, Oh, sweet. This is just what we want. We got them right where we want them. But then the capital C church comes along and says, yeah, no, um, we want we want our stuff back. <laughs> we want our society back. We want our families back. We want our churches back and we want the state back. Um, and so understanding where we go from from there is essential. And these discussions need to happen. I, I think the debate needs to happen. But at some at some point, we need to act. Uh, and the more and more we delay, mark my words, like you heard it here first, God's going to force our hand. It's going to be continued uh, persecution, co uh, continued silliness. Um, and yet the Lord will have the last laugh because he's, he will not be mocked. And, and the word tells us he will not lose. And that includes us. Um, so either we get on board or we don't, but in either case he wins. Yeah. So how does that look to actually begin to act? Um, because so, you know, by all accounts, it seems like in the West and in America, the church is, um, shrinking right now. 
Um, and even in that context, I would say maybe even most professing Christians would not uh, be on board with like a Christian nationalism agenda. Yeah. Um, and, and I even saw some statistics on uh, or listened to some statistics on Kevin Swanson's podcast uh, yesterday, I believe. And I think postmillennialism is still the least held eschatological belief. So I guess with all that in consideration, you know, we are a minority, a vast minority mm-hmm. of people that believe this. So what does it look like to actually begin to act this out? I mean, do, do we start just in our families, in our jobs, in our businesses? Um, do we get involved in politics? Like, wh- what, is it, what does it look like? Yeah. Well, man, we're, we got a lot of places we can run with this. I think most specifically, because I still want to go down a tangent on the nuance behind the term Christian nationalism, if we have time. But to answer, well, um, do you, do you want to go ahead and start with that then, and then maybe we can kind of go from there? Well, I would argue your question right right here is more important, so I'm going to get to that. It's more okay. Important. All right. At the end of the day, right? Like we, as I'm saying, we should be talking through these things. But I can't. I was raised uh, to not be able to stand just talking. Like I'm with you. Like we need to act. Right. We need to be willing to take on hell with a squirt gun. All right. So let's get there. So to to answer your question, um. One of the, when I was talking about near history, you know, some of the theonomists versus the theocrats, one of those theocrats, uh, Peter J. Lightheart, can't recommend him enough. He's the president of the Theopolis Institute. He recently said last year in a missions conference that we need to inherit the vision of the Christians of old who would right now begin building a cathedral that would take 500 years to build. And they did it. If you go to Europe, Cathedral after cathedral, institution after institution, children and their children's children and their children's children would labor towards a work for the kingdom. And they are still standing. And I promise you they will stand uh, long, uh, long. uh, They will they will stand when all of our contemporary coffee shop churches fall. Right. Because they were committed and blessed by God for this long term vision. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll speak really quickly to family, church, and state, and, and, the, and the steps we can take. But if we don't have that foundation of a long-term view, um, then our work will be futile. We will become quickly discouraged uh, or uh, in, all, in various ways distracted with that which we need to do because we won't be trusting that God will do something with it. Uh, but a man reaps what he sows, and God blesses the righteous. So, so long as we are committed to the work of the kingdom, he's got to bless it, and we have to be uh, convinced of that. We have to live that out. So that being said, with a long-term framework, like I said, it's these spheres of sovereignty that are starting to bring people into the fold of what do we do? Um, and unfortunately the rapture generation, right. Only thinks of themselves of, Oh, you know, I'm going to just kind of do my goody two shoes thing because at any moment now, the, the, the legions of heaven and the 82nd airborne are going to come get us out of here before (laughs) this becomes, uh, the, the Lord's Vietnam. Right. Um, But instead, we need to be thinking of our, what I need to be thinking right now, what you need to be thinking right now, is in what way will I still be continuing to disciple my great-grandchildren? That that kind of talk, that thinking is foreign to a majority of Christians, but it matters, right? That changes the way that that I pay my taxes, right? That changes the way where I think about what kind of community do I want to live in and how do I want to contribute to that community? That changes the way that I 
meditate on scripture, that I study scripture, that I write down my thoughts so that they can be articulated to the ones who come after me. It changes everything. But the family, as, as you had with uh, C.R. Wiley on, which was a <laughs> wild, it was phenomenal, um, understanding that the family has always been regarded by Western civilization as the, uh, the first stepping stone towards advancement in God's kingdom. When we look at scripture over and over and over and over again, God was uh, communing, he was covenanting with families. He didn't put Adam and Steve in the garden. He didn't put Adam and an army in the garden. He put Adam and Eve, man and woman, a family in the garden. He covenanted with them. When he covenanted with Abram, it was for him and his children and his children's children, right? Family, the people of Israel, the family of Israel. And such it is in Christ that we, by his blood, are adopted into the family of God. That this family, this very, very critical institution, is going to thrive. So men need to ask right now, how can I love my wife as Christ loved the church? And what does that physically look like, right? What kind of home do I need to literally build? What kind of community do I need to contribute in, right? For young men, hey, you know her, you know her name, marry her right now. We need a resurgence of folks getting married young again, having babies and baptizing them. Now, I don't know about your convictions, so I apologize. If we're going to wait till a profession of faith. <laughs> but at any rate, the the... the the draw, see, the problem has been um, what, because we've all heard the um, the cliche phrase, like the American dream, right? Like a family, two kids, white picket fence. What that became over time was more about the fence, more about the car out front, all the materialism as, uh, associated with that quote unquote dream. When in reality, what was the foundation of that dream? It was the family, right? So we need to be educating our children that the family is your immediate draw. It's your appeal. It is what you should be striving for in your youth because it's going to be the most blessed institution that you directly uh, participate in, right? Um, so that's those are some things I would say with what steps we need to take in our family is get married young, have a long-term vision for your family to disciple your kids and their kids, right? But you can't do that alone, right? But you need to know, you need to know the rights and responsibilities of the family. Uh, but once you have that a little bit under your belt, you're going to recognize I need to be regularly empowered to do this and formed on how to do this. And so we coordinate with the government of the church, right? This is, this is where um, those theocrats and theonomists have a different position that I would, I would side a little bit more with the theocrats on this. What they said to the theonomists was, Hey, we can't renew the culture. or We can't expect to renew the culture until we renew the church. And I'm a firm believer of that because judgment always starts with the household of God. Right. If we are not worshiping the Lord rightly and obeying him properly, then he will not bless our land. That's Deuteronomy 28. Um, so if the church is the ministry of word and sacrament, and that is the, the rights and responsibilities it possesses, the jurisdiction it holds, it is going to have a profound impact on the church. Or excuse me, it's going to have a profound impact on the family and the state to be a, to, to serve uh, as a prophet, to say, here's what the word says to serve as a priest to say we are interceding for the sins uh, and the blessings of this community uh, and as king to rule over uh, what the Lord has said and how that's going to take shape in communities. Um, so we need to be asking, are our churches worshiping rightly? Is it in accordance with scripture? Is it for the scripture? Is it foreign to the history of the church? If we answer those two last questions, yes, we need to be very, very concerned. We will not have renewal in our land if we don't have renewal in the church. Um, and lastly, because I know I'm running out of time here, but the state, 
the biggest thing that we can do right now towards seeing a renewal of the state is to tell the state that it's not the savior. All right. What belongs to Caesar belongs to Caesar, but what belongs to God is God's and God is over all. The state is not the savior. Jesus Christ is the savior. We have to really re remind the state that on our money, it says in God, we trust. Unfortunately, uh, if, if evangelicals were being honest today, they would say in Congress, we trust in social security, we trust in public education, we trust in virtually anything else that is provided by the state except God. All right. So, so we need to relearn again our own history. But most importantly, what does scripture have to say about the roles, rights and responsibilities of civil government? And what we will find is that, wow, we have made an idol of the state far more than we realize. In fact, whenever I started reading the literature that was dealing with this theology, I was like, oh, my goodness. Uh, day to day, when the common evangelical man is thinking about his idols, the idols in his life, he's thinking about lust or maybe pride or arrogance, right? But he's not thinking about statism. And I was confronted with, man, I have really fallen victim to statism of, of relying upon the state of saying, oh, well, there ought to be a law for this, that, and the other without realizing that the state has no right to make a law over this, that, and the other. When we renew the church, the church's understanding of those ideas, that, you wanna talk about what, what frightens the state, that, that, that unleashes a reign of terror. And that's what we saw in the French Revolution, right? Um, so, so those things, hopefully in a nutshell, as I continue to ramble, are hopeful, uh, tangible ways. And I can talk about resources here in a second, but that's, I, I hope, a good introduction of getting us thinking towards action. Yeah, yeah, that's great, man. I love that. All right, so I do want to uh, touch on Christian nationalism. So how about you just give... Um, <laughs> You give like your uh, definition of Christian nationalism and then um, maybe just like a case for Ooh. Christian nationalism, kind of like the title Jeez. of that book. Um, and then, um, yeah, then we can just kind of wrap it up there. All right. Uh, this is going to be a speed round. Crash course. Let's go to the thought bubble. All right. So, folks, the term Christian nationalism is, of course, hated by the secularists, but unfortunately it gets a bad rap even amongst Christians because there's so much debate over what you were just asking for, that definition. Now, the two resources I would point people to, because they're really the only ones right now that exist in this discussion, are Andrew Torba and Andrew, Iskew, uh, Andrew Isker's um, the K, or Christian Nationalism right here. This one is uh, A Biblical Guide for Taking Dominion and Discipling Nations. And then the far more controversial one, uh, The Case for Christian Nationalism of Stephen Wolf. Um, Essentially, what, the, what both of them have in common with their definitions is that Christians need to wake up and remember, again, all the things that I just described of, of we have a responsibility to state, church, family, and every other arena of society, and we have to actually act on them. We can't just believe it. Religion is not minimized to behind our eyes and between our ears, right? Like it comes out of us, whether we want it to or not, because when we don't act in these arenas, what we communicate to the world is Christ is the savior of my heart, but not the world. All right, so that's what they have in common. Now, Wolf goes on for 455 pages about ideas of Christian nationalism, um, essentially saying that Christian nationalism is a kind of nationalism in which the, the will of the Christian people is exerted in real time and space uh, for their good, the good of society, right? Now, what's funny about that is, and this is where, again, there's nuance and there's debate, because I, um, I would disagree with that definition 
only because of the the means it is seeing towards the end. I like the ends, right, of a Christian society really living in accordance with Scripture. But the means, the language he used of we are exerting our will, ironically, is secular. Ironically, he begins the book by pointing out that Jean-Jacques Rousseau, one of the leading figures of the French Revolution, a terrible guy of whom some have said, like, hey, if I was in a room uh, with... Uh, two bullets and Rousseau and Hitler in front of me, I'd shoot Rousseau twice. Like he's that bad of a guy, right? He's that bad of a guy, right? He used that same language in, in, uh, in his doctrine to say that like the will of the people needs to be exerted in revolution, right? Towards national means and ends. Wolf points that out and criticizes him, but then kind of uses the same language. So that's where people, have, mm. uh, among other things, people have had all kinds of, uh, all kinds of critiques, but that's been a big one, and I would agree with that criticism. A lot of people have criticized the term nationalism. Now, this is coming back from my my poli sci background, political science background. Um, a lot of people don't like the term nationalism because they think of the early 20th century, the First World War, of either ethno nationalism, people uh, identifying with their ethnicity and that driving their nationalistic policy, or some basically false identity that's incorporated on the peoples and saying like this nation, this state will act this way. They have a problem with it here and there. Um, here's the thing, though. We can have problems with that term. The, the, the current theocrats or the theopolitans I was describing earlier, they, they prefer the term ecclesiocentric nationalism, basically church-centered nationalism, whatever. I think no matter how we skin this cat, we still get the same result. Are believers concerned with the word of God applying to our society? In any way, shape, or form, I don't care what term we use, do we see that as not just a biblical suggestion, but a commandment? That's that's what this really comes down to. And I'm for I for one are are more than convinced that when Christ said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations and teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey. All this conversation is centered around will nations literally be discipled, right? Actively or passively. No matter what term we slap onto that, no matter how we try to mobilize that, I believe this is not a biblical suggestion. It's a commandment. We are to disciple the nations. And so that's where I believe the conversation needs to shift because there's so much nuanced debate about what term should we use and and like what should, again, what should the policies be and this, that, and the other. That's all great. But if we have a long-term view in mind, we know that those... Uh, those buttons will be polished over time. But for right now, we have a responsibility to act. Delayed obedience is just disobedience, right? But right mm-hmm. now, with regard to the spheres of sovereignty we've discussed, Christians need to act. Uh, or, again, God's going to force our hand to anyway. That's where that post-millennial thinking comes in of like, hey, look, God's going to get the glory uh, regardless of our, uh, our diligence or lack of diligence. And there's a glory to that. So I'm excited. Because as you were saying, look, we're still in the minority position. That's fine. Give it another 50 years. Give it another 100 years. And people are going to jump on board. And I'm not just saying that in a vacuum. It's happened in church history over and over and over and over again. Um, so hopefully that was a, <laughs> as brief as an answer I could get uh, for that one. But uh, this, these are things, again, that we need to talk about and act on. Yeah, man. I agree. It's definitely a conversation that needs to be had at least just to um to for people to be exposed to the ideas and to like you know confront their biases and to actually like have them like think about like okay like 
do I actually think that God's law should be applied to, you know, all of our society? And if so, like, what does that look like? And, you know, what, what role does that give the state? What role does that give the church? What role does that give the family? And, and, uh, you know, how, how are we going to practically like live this out? Because we can't just, you know, we can't just post on social media about how we hate abortion and gay marriage. Um, you know, we have to actually do something about it. Right. So, (laughs) and again, I think that's one of the ways in which God has forced our hand because for a long, long, long time, and what has been described as Eisenhower America, right? The golden age, the greatest generation, all the prosperity where, again, quote, unquote, everybody was Christian. We were just having a happy, slappy time. Um, all the while, we were just saying, we don't need to be worried about engaging in politics or culture. We just need to love. Well, we live in a, in a day-to-day where we don't even know what a woman is, let alone what love is, right? We're talking about something that's mm-hmm. concrete biological, physical reality, how much harder is it for the church to articulate to the culture what an abstract concept, an intangible concept is, and that is love. But we know that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is the highest example of love, the highest reality, tangible reality of love. Um, And so, yeah, it's still all about love. But the best way that we can love our neighbor as ourselves is to teach them to obey the laws of Christ. This is in the Great Commission, right? Not because uh, we live in some, the, the kingdom of God is some bureaucracy. That's actually what the dispensationalists believe. Uh, but because it, it is a lordship, it is a kingship by which we are given responsibilities of our dominion uh, to, to articulate these things and love our neighbors in this way. The best way we can love our neighbor is by obeying the laws of God and telling them about it. Yeah. Amen, brother. All right. So I do have one more question for you before we wrap up. And it's a new question, so you're only the second guest that I've asked this question to. Um, And it's pretty straightforward. Can you please articulate the gospel in your own words? Oh, now this is fun because when I was discipling different folks in college, I would toss this to them. And uh, you get all kinds of responses or folks who take three minutes or 30 minutes. So here is here's the gospel, uh, aside from just appealing to John 316. I think the most compelling gospel passage to me that sums it all up is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin that we would inherit the righteousness of God. The problem with man is that he is totally unable to save himself uh, by any exertion of will or work or decision. We are not, we're not merely afflicted by our sins. We are not sick in our sins. Scripture says we are dead in our sins. And unless we have Christ call us out of that grave, Uh, as he did with Lazarus, we're not getting up. We have no blood pulsing through our veins. And so the gospel is such that the spirit goes forth to save sinners, no matter, no matter their, uh, their affinity towards it, that they are redeemed. They are justified by the work of Christ alone and the shedding of his blood, that they would be sanctified for the good works prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2.10, and eventually glorified to dwell eternally with the triune God. And this is the gospel. Repent and believe for the kingdom is here. Christ is our king. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you so much, CG. I really appreciate you coming on the show. It was a great conversation, man. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll do it again soon. Of course. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Worldview War Room. I hope it leaves you feeling inspired to get married and have a bunch of kids and to build a family and to plant a church and build a community to make some art, to uh, write some music or to write a novel, uh, to build a business, to make a delicious meal um, (laughs) and to do it all for the glory of God. So really, um, you know, what this podcast is about is creating Christian culture, um, discipling the nations, evangelizing the lost. So as I like to say at the end of every episode, go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. I'll see you back here next time.